Why don't you guys stand for the reading of God's word? Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him, asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through the arid places seeking rest, and it does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house that I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and they live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave birth to you and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You can grab a seat. Interesting passage today. I actually had an outline that was all written up. Uh, And then on Friday, I just looked at it and I just said, no way, shredded the whole thing and said, this is a complex passage. We're bouncing between story and then teaching and then parable and then story. So we're going to keep it really simple today. We're just going to go no main points, just verse by verse through this thing. That way, if any of us gets lost, probably me, we can't because we just look down at our Bibles and we'll know exactly where we are based on the verse. So let's dive in. Verse 14, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. Pause. I think we probably need to talk about this for a second. Um, We don't talk about demons very often. I think in American culture today, the belief in the demonic is probably considered similar to the belief in leprechauns or the belief that the lions will ever win a Super Bowl. (laughs) It's something that we believed years ago, but year after year experience has taught us it's not going to happen. We shouldn't believe in it, right? In fact, what do you call a lion with a Super Bowl ring? A thief. (laughs) Guys, okay, maybe cut the lion jokes next time. Too too sensitive. Too soon. Uh, Where was I? I... Making friends with the Lion fans, that's where I'm at. Uh, No, I figured we needed a little bit of levity before we dive into this really complex uh, passage here. But I really do think the point that I'm trying to make is that in culture today, it's often assumed that the belief in the demonic is fantasaical. It's a relic of the past, an old-time belief before we had all these modern advances in science and knowledge And so many people look at this passage and passages like it and just conclude that Jesus is operating out of some kind of an outdated, overly simplistic worldview here. What I want to say is Jesus is often simple, he's easy to understand, but he's never simplistic. 
Jesus is often simple, but he's never simplistic. Do you guys know what I mean when I say that? According to the Bible, let me illustrate it this way. Are there demons? Good, thank you. Not a trick question, perfect. Jesus says in verse 14, or Luke says in verse 14, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. Apparently this demon was so real in this guy's life, so tangible that he actually began to take on the characteristics of it. The demon couldn't speak, so the man couldn't speak. He was mute. And I'm aware that this raises some questions. Some of you guys might be thinking, some of them right now, like, does the Bible view all illness, mental and physical, as signs of demonic oppression? Does it? No. I know many people have used passages like this to argue things like that, but Jesus heals many different kinds of ailments. A lot of them physical ailments, all kinds of different things, and he never cites the demonic for a lot of them. So... I want to actually encourage you, if that's what you're wondering, just read back through the last few pages of Luke, and you'll find several of these. But back at what I was saying again, Jesus is never simplistic. He recognizes something here that modern medicine is only now starting to get. What is that? It's that we're more than just physical beings. We're more than just calcium and capillaries. Together, a person is much deeper than that. In fact, modern medicine is starting to have a lot of studies that are coming out to illustrate this. It's just now starting to realize that non-physical things can actually change a person's biological structure. An example is childhood trauma. They're actually finding that this non-biological event can shift a person at the cellular level. We are physical, emotional, spiritual beings, and all of these things are working together, influencing the person. So before we go ahead and make Luke and Jesus out to be outdated relics of the past or overly simplistic, we might need to recognize a couple things. One, today as Americans, we might be the reductionist people that try to take everything and put it down into the physical. Jesus deals with the mind, the body, the emotions, the soul, the spirit. They're all engaged in Christ. We're the ones who try to fit everything through modern medicine and the biological. And two, second thing we need to recognize, it worked. Whatever's going on here in a scientific world that's about results, what Jesus did worked. It silenced the crowd. It left everyone amazed. Verse 14 The man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. We're going to talk about the historicity of this. Sorry for the big word, but can we trust this? Is this historical? Did it really happen? We'll talk about that in a little bit, but I want to keep going for a second here. Jesus was driving out a demon who was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. Stop again. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. This might be a bad strategy because we're not even out of the first verse yet, and I'm going to add something to it. But Matthew 12 tells the same account, the same story that's going on, but it gives us a little detail that I think will be helpful for us. Matthew 12:22 says, Then they brought him, this is to Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? Look down at your Bible. It should be capitalized even. Son of David. Why? David died centuries ago. How could someone even be his son? What's going on here? The answer is the same for both of those questions. It's capitalized because it's a proper title. 
these people are wondering, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the one that we've been waiting for? The Savior of Israel, is this him possibly? And I think we get hung up in passages like this. An exorcism takes place in it, and we just can't take our eyes off of that fact. But let me say this really clearly. This passage is not about how to perform an exorcism. Exorcisms weren't all that uncommon back then. In fact, I've done a little bit of study on them this week. But something about this particular one was so utterly unique that people started to wonder, is this the Messiah? Exorcisms back then typically had some shared elements. They used some combination of these. I want to read them out for you guys. Uh, People would use incense that was burned. They would use medicines. They would take a ring off someone's finger and a bowl of water and use it together. They played music. Amulets were used. Palm tree prickles, wood chips, ashes, pitch, cumin. Apparently demons were not fans of good Indian food. I don't get it. Dog hair, thread, and special sounds. Cacaw! More common, however, is people would use a very famous name. And this name was meant to invoke authority, the authority that they could use over this demon. People would use names like Solomon. By the power of Solomon, I command you. Or later, people will do this with Jesus. But Jesus does something so totally different. He doesn't invoke a name. He seems to cast out this demon solely on his own personal authority. In some cases, the demons actually even call it out for him. It's crazy. Luke chapter 8, you may have remembered this from a few weeks ago. Luke 8, 28, Jesus steps off the boat and this demoniac comes running out and it just starts screaming. Luke 8, 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. This demon is actually invoking the authority of Jesus' name. For him. That's why this passage is not really about demons. I've heard pastors preach sermons on this, and they typically take one of two strategies. One is they skip it entirely and pull that old pastoral trick. Ah, oh, man, our sermon series is just getting a little long, so we got to, you know, breeze through a few sections. I tried that this week. Rod didn't let me. Or two, they preach sermons devoted entirely to the demonic. I mean, like real Emily Rose type stuff going on here about how it's demonic to do yoga or to watch Avatar or to know what Hogwarts is. And I'm not trying to bash that or these guys because I actually think that they're doing a huge service because they're talking about something that is never really talked about uh, in the world and rarely in the church. In fact, you could say, if God is the great I am... Satan is the great I am not. That he's never more happy than when people don't believe in him. But the problem that I have is I think sometimes we look at the tree that's in the text and we miss the forest. And the tree in this is the exorcism. But really, the forest is this passage is not about how to do an exorcism. This passage is not about demons actually at all either. It's about Christ. It's about our King In this passage, we got to ask, what is it showing us about him? It's showing us that our king has authority over all, everything in this earth, even the devil, are subject to him. Nothing scares or intimidates our king. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. 
Even the Pharisees recognize that. Even the Pharisees end up discussing by where does he get this unique power and authority? And that's really the question that gets asked is by whom does he get this authority? Excuse me. Look at verse 15. Give yourselves a pat on the back. We're finally out of the first verse. But some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. And we'll talk about this in just a second this group that says that it's by demonic power, but continue on for a moment here. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. This group of people seems genuinely interested. Maybe this unique authority comes from heaven. Do another sign, Jesus. Give us a sign from heaven so that we know that this is real. It kind of makes me think of the Lion King. When you have uh, the hyenas, and one of them says, Mufasa. And they tremble and they shake. And what's their response? Ooh, ooh, do it again. Do it again. And these guys are like, maybe this is from heaven. Do again. Do another sign. Let me know the power that you have here. And Jesus answers them in verse 29. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. This is Rod's text next week, but... That's the sign of three days in the belly of the whale and then resurrected back to life. But you say, this is kind of mean of Jesus. People want sign, they want proof, they want evidence. um, And you tell them they're a wicked generation for asking for this and that they're not going to get anything but one sign. And I don't think Jesus is being mean here. I think Jesus actually knows something, a principle that is all throughout Scripture. I think we get hung up on signs and wonders and we think, man, if I could just have that, my faith would be stronger. I know I myself am like, man, I'd love to see a miracle. Do one, God. That would be great. I just, my faith would be even stronger. But scripture teaches over and over again that miracles and signs are poor faith builders. Pharaoh sees sign after sign after sign, some of the most amazing things ever done, and yet his heart is hard. And he refuses to believe. Israel in the desert sees all kinds of miraculous things. And yet they rebel and they doubt all the time. Elijah on Mount Carmel has this bowl that's water drenched that just goes up in flames. And you're expecting Israel to have a revival and it doesn't happen. Jesus does sign after sign, wonder after wonder. And one of his own disciples who was there the whole time betrays him. And the crowds that were witness now suddenly yell out, crucify him, crucify him. Miracles are poor faith builders. What I want to say today is don't seek a sign. Seek a savior. Don't seek a sign or a flashy experience. Seek a relationship with the one who is described in this passage. I think when we realize that we too are like this demonic man, I don't mean that everyone in here is possessed by a demon. What I mean, though, is that we're all held in bondage, in slavery to sin, with no hope of being able to rescue or free ourselves. But when we meditate on that, when we think on that, and we think about the one who came that sets the captives free, that's what makes your heart explode. That's what just brings real growth in the life of a believer. You don't need a sign. You need a Savior. Verse 17, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, 
Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. This is the Pharisees' attempt to explain, where does Jesus get this authority? In this case, they argue that it's from Beelzebul. But who is Beelzebul? It's not exactly a name that we throw around all the time. It probably won't make the list of top baby names for 2015. What's Beelzebul? 2 Kings chapter 1. I'm just going to sum it up. You guys can turn there if you want. Ahaziah seeks an oracle. He wants to know, am I going to survive? Am I going to keep living? Um, Am I going to recover from this illness? And he seeks an oracle from Baal, Zebul. It literally means Great Baal or Prince Baal. But if you read in your Bible in 2 Kings chapter 1, it's not going to say Baal Zebul. It's going to say Baal Zebub. Because what's going on is the Israelites are actually having a little fun with this. And if you change one little marking in the Hebrew, it changes the meaning from Great Baal, Prince Baal, to Baal, Lord of a Fly. And so what they're pointing out is this guy has no power whatsoever. And they put it in there, a little joke in your Bible. And Luke has kind of taken it back because by this time, Baal Zebul, Great Baal, Prince Baal, now means in the culture just the chief of demons. The prince of demons, it probably says in your translation, Satan. Now, if I can get on my soapbox for just a minute here. Um, People like to argue that Christians shut their brains off, that we don't really think about things, that um, we're not aware of, you know, whether or not we can really trust our Bibles. And so I like to, whenever I'm up here, just kind of throw little things out there because that's just flat out not true. And so I'm sure in a room this size, there are people reading this passage and thinking, man, mute people speaking, demons getting cast out. This is not part of my everyday life experience. How can I know that this actually took place all those years ago? And one, I want to give you just, Luke is writing for that exact purpose. If you turn back to Luke chapter 1, Neil preached on this uh, at the beginning of this, but Luke isn't just writing theologically, he's actually writing an apologetic here too, from the first century. Luke 1.1, 1, 1, he says, Many have undertaken to draw up the account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, things that were handed down by those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated, this guy was diligent, everything from the beginning, I've decided to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. That's Luke's purpose. He was writing to an audience that could have fact-checked this, saying, I've already done some fact-checking, I'm writing it down so that you can know for sure. Look into it, though. And you're maybe saying, you can't prove that like Luke to, to prove Luke. You can't use that. It's a circular argument. And so with that in mind, I did a little research this week. And I spent a little time looking at non-Christian sources. The sources, the people who didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ. The people who uh, rejected him. The people who crucified him. What did they say about Jesus during his life? What did the Romans say? What did the Jews say? And what I found was that almost unanimously they say things like this. Jesus performed many miracles. He's a man during that time. He did miracles. He exercised demons. We're not really sure how he did it, but we think that it was through sorcery or through Beelzebub. 
They wrote in almost word for word, non-Christian sources, exactly what's in your Bible. The question of the first century was not, did this happen? That's the question that we're asking now, 2,000 years later. The question for everyone in the first century was not, did it happen, but how did it happen? And that's really the question of our text right here. How does it take place? And the Pharisees say, he's doing these amazing things. He's got authority over even the demonic realm, but how? And that's when they say, oh, he must just have a stronger demon. And to that, Jesus' response is beautiful. I love it. He basically just says, that's idiotic and illogical. He says, to say that Satan's going to attack himself would be about as ludicrous as saying that a football team is going to begin tackling their own players. Or that ISIS would begin bombing their own training camps. Or that Greg Dempster would smash his own guitar. It's just not going to take place. So Jesus calls their theory illogical, but then he goes even a step further. Look at verse 19. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your disciples drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is playing off a famous Old Testament story to just kind of like smack him in the face, and I love it. Do you guys know what story he's playing off? What Old Testament story is he referencing here? Exodus 8. Anytime you're reading and a phrase seems weird, it seems off or just kind of like interesting or unique, or you think, I've heard that before, look at it. It's oftentimes that he's given us something. Exodus 8, he says, by the finger of God. That's the key right there. So Exodus 8, turn back there. Well, you guys all remember, Moses and Aaron have been doing all kinds of signs for Pharaoh. The plagues. During that time, Pharaoh has these magicians and they're able to duplicate some of these miracles, but on a much lesser extent. Kind of like you can throw it on your staff and make it a snake, so can we. But then Moses' snake is going to come along and eat theirs. And then we get to Exodus 8, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon the people and the animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce this by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magicians went to Pharaoh and said, This is the finger of God. Not even all of God, just his finger, but this is God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. Come back to our story. Fast forward just a little bit. Enter Jesus and his retort to these Pharisees is just so cool. He says, with the finger of God, if I do this with the finger of God, and what he's basically saying is he's comparing the Pharisees' disciples who did these miracles, but to lesser extent. And we know that they were lesser because when Jesus performs this exorcism, everyone's like, this guy might be the Messiah. He's saying if your disciples can do some of these things, but they then come and testify saying that this is the finger of God. So he's comparing them to the magicians. Who's that then make the Pharisees? Pharaoh. Hard-hearted, enemy of Israel who refused to recognize that God was in his mix, that's 
who he's comparing them to. Do you see why they wanted to kill him? And Jesus said, Then the kingdom of God has come. What kind of kingdom? Anytime Jesus talks about the kingdom, we have to ask, what's he teaching us about it? What's he illustrating? What's he showing us about the kingdom? And this passage is no different. He's showing us that the kingdom is a place of restoration. Look at verse 14. There's a man who is unable to speak. And when he encounters Jesus, when the kingdom comes, he's restored. And he's able to talk. And he's able to converse and to do the things that he was able to, to, do, to do before. We previously read about a man coming out of the caves who was living there, who was cutting himself. He was naked, running around. He was breaking chains and he was outside his mind. And when he meets Jesus, what happens? People find him sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. When the kingdom comes, it's a place of restoration. Jesus, his ministry of exorcism, it wasn't just preparation for the kingdom, though. It wasn't just a sign of the kingdom. This is actually the kingdom of God, what it looks like, what it is. It's a place of restoration. It's a place where the afflicted will be healed. It's a place where evil will be triumphed over, where the captive will be set free. It's the kingdom of God is the place where the man comes A man comes and he falls at his feet before the king and he owes a debt that he could never pay back in hundreds of years and he just throws himself at the mercy of the king. And the king looks at him and he doesn't punish him. And he doesn't even lessen the debt. He erases it completely. The kingdom is the place where the king is holding a great banquet and a great celebration. He doesn't invite royalty and all people of high esteem. He goes out into the streets and he invites everyone to come in and celebrate with him. The kingdom is a place where the king dies for his subjects. That is the type of kingdom that we're a part of. We want to talk about national pride, patriotism, a nation or a kingdom that you can get behind with your whole heart. This is it. Crossroads, are you excited to be a part of this kingdom? This is what Jesus has come to bring. This is what Revelation 21 and 22, when he returns, he's going to bring in fullness. And I know I said no main points, but you can take the outline away from the pastor, but let me just give that as a main point. The kingdom is a place of restoration. And two, I got another point about the kingdom, I guess, but it's in verse 21, so that makes me feel better because that's where we're at. When a strong man fully armed guards his house, his possessions are safe, but when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. The biggest question that I get about God and about his existence is if God is real, Why is the world so seemingly broken? Why is there still suffering? Why is there evil? Why is there cruelty? Why is there pain? And for many, the answer is simple. Well, Satan exists. If there's a God, then there's also a Satan. If there's a Harry Potter, then there's also a Voldemort. If there's a Michigan, there's also a Michigan State. You guys can decide which is which in that one. The yin and the yang. I'm an Oklahoma fan, so I'm a little angry at the Spartans this weekend. The yin and the yang, the good and the bad, slugging it out to see who's ultimately going to triumph. Is that what's going on in our world? Many people believe this. Many Christians believe this. It's natural to draw this conclusion, right? 
The belief that there's two forces, good and bad, both kind of evenly matched, doing battle with each other, and the outcome's kind of up in the air. Or it's dependent on how much we pray. Or which one we feed the most. This belief is called dualism. And it's absolutely not biblical. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. The Bible does speak of Satan. And he is undoubtedly strong. But he's never the counterpoint to God. Let me say that again. Satan is never on par with God. 1 John 4.4 You, dear children, are from God, and you have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The book of Job. Satan does all kinds of powerful things to Job, but how does it begin with him presenting himself before God and getting permission to do any of it? Revelation is all about this battle going on between Satan and God, but the outcome is never in doubt. One is clearly far, far stronger than the other. Isaiah 14 says that Satan was cast down out of heaven for trying to make himself on the same level as God. Please, in your minds, Christians, don't do it for him with bad theology. When good and evil, when God and Satan clash, God wins every single time, and it's not even close. It's like an ant trying to shove an elephant. It's another attribute of the kingdom Jesus wants to see here. Not only is the kingdom a place of restoration, but it's a kingdom with only one king. There are zero rivals in this kingdom. And some of you guys are having hard weeks. Some of you are having hard months, maybe even years. Take heart. The one who is in you is stronger than the one who is in the world. And I can't guarantee that tomorrow everything is going to suddenly change and suddenly improve and smooth over, but I will tell you the ultimate victory is not in doubt. Evil, death, suffering, they're temporary. God has already triumphed over them with the cross, and he's coming back to ultimately wipe them out completely. Our king, our Messiah, is stronger than even the strong man. And he's in the business of setting captives free. Do you know this deliverance? Do you know the freedom that he brings? Do you know the one who merely steps off the boat and the demoniacs just tremble before him? Jesus, son of the living God, what are you going to do with us? What kind of army surrenders before the fight? The one that knows that it's outmatched and outgunned completely. That's our king. That's the kingdom. That's the one that we've been adopted into and we're citizens of. Verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This passage is saying a very sobering thing. There's no neutral in this kingdom. If you're one of the people, kind of like the ones that we read, that are saying, give us another sign that we'll really know. If you're wrestling with, can I trust my Bible? Can I know that? That's why I give you some of those things. I want you to have confidence, Christian and non-Christian, that this really is right over here in your lap, the Word of God. But if you're wrestling, I want to encourage you, wrestle away, but do so in light of this verse, knowing that time is not guaranteed, tomorrow is not guaranteed, and that there is no neutral. You are either for me or you're against me. 
A decision needs to be made. There is no such thing as no decision in this question. Verse 24, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through the arid places seeking rest and it does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house that I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and they live there. The final condition of that person is worse than the first. This house swept clean. Nature hates a vacuum. Nature detests a vacuum. In fact, I heard an avid gardener once challenge some listeners and he said, I dare you to take a six by six foot plot of earth and try to keep it empty. He said, you can't do it. If you don't fill your garden with beauty, it'll fill itself with all kinds of ugliness. And the same is true for people. Counselors have realized this over the years. When people come in and they have an addiction or behavior that they want to stop and you just focus on trying to get rid of it, it's next to not at all successful. You need to replace that with something else, something of value, something of substance. And Jesus is picking up on this. He's saying you can uproot some forms of evil in your life, but if you don't fill it with something of real substance and value, more evil, worse evil is just going to fill it. I remember at one point in my life recognizing something and just being wrecked over it that I was using kind of the ability to get girls' attention or interest to kind of validate, like, am I lovable? Am I significant? Am I important? And so I was disgusted with it and I repented of it and I started cutting it out and took this big hiatus from girls. But what happened was if you don't daily start filling it with God, I realized how quickly I looked to grades or I look to reputation or a host of other things to begin to fill that space. And what I think Jesus is arguing here is that very thing. Your life is going to be filled with something. And if you're filling it with anything less than Him, you're not safe. And you're vulnerable. What are you filled with today? What does your day look like? What do you wake up thinking about filling your time with? Is it things that gratify what you want and you desire? Or have you sworn your fealty to the king and you live in light of the kingdom and for that rather than just yourself? There will be a king in your house. I can guarantee that. Is it going to be the one who casts out demons and calms the storm? Or is it going to be something else? There is no neutral. Nature hates a vacuum. Verse 27. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave birth to you and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. What's going on here? The fact that this is almost a direct quote from what Mary sings when she's pregnant and the fact that it seems totally random and that Jesus said some things about who his mothers and brothers were to the crowds before makes me sometimes wonder and like to picture Jesus' mom kind of slipping into the crowd and shouting from the back, Blessed is the mom who gave birth to you! The woman who nursed you! That's not what's going on here, though. I'm fairly confident. What is happening, though? I think there's just a woman who is captivated with Jesus. She recognizes part of who she is and she's just like, blessed is the mom who raised up this holy man for us to listen to today. And Jesus, He doesn't rebuke her. 
He just, I mean, Mary's indeed blessed, but he says, how much more blessed are those who hear my word and obey it? This verse should punch us today as believers. Jesus is calling us to a life of obedience. What's that look like for you today? There are things that you need to step towards. Things that you need to step away from. To really take this to heart. Blessed is the one who hears my words and obeys them. A few weeks ago, just as a tip, I kind of shared this and I'll share it again, but especially in light of Good Friday and Easter, I think the best way to do that is not just to focus on, I got to stop doing this or I've got to do this, but instead you begin to focus on the one who gave it all up for you. The one who went to the cross. The one who set you free. And as you do that, that power of that greater affection, that thing that you hold up as more valuable, just begins to expel the other stuff from your life. And it becomes not obligation, but worship and gratitude. How do you sum up this whole passage? I think the thing that comes to mind for me is actually a story from long, long ago. It's a story of a shepherd boy who was walking along and he came upon a battle that was taking place. No one was fighting yet. People, one side was up on one hill, the other side up on the other hill. One side looking really confident and strong and the other side looking very timid and afraid and a giant in the middle. And it's the story of David and Goliath and I think it's a story in the Old Testament that reflects what's happening here. And oftentimes when we read this story, we like to make ourselves David and through the power of God we can slay our giants. But what I really think is more apt is that we are on that hill, scared, watching this poor shepherd boy go down there and slay the giant. And what happens to Israel when they see that this unconquerable strong man is taken down? They then rush the hill and they then enter into the battle. And what we have here is a man born in a manger from no-name parents, from a town that people would say, can anything good come from Nazareth? And he steps onto the scene and he binds up the strong man and he conquers sin, death, and the devil with the cross. And crossroads, when we see that, can we be the kind of people that when we see our king conquering the strong man, we can then charge the hill to and enter into the battle? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the lamb that was led to slaughter, but you are also the conquering king who has triumphed through the cross, who's triumphed over death, and we'll be celebrating that next week, but we celebrate that every day. And God, I pray that we would look to you as our champion, that we would look to you as the one who sets captives free. Set us free, Lord, and use us as agents to just do your work here in this city. We love you, and we need you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.